Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Shipshape Podcast. Today on our show, we have Captain Ray Thackeray, who has been around the world. He grew up in the UK. Now he's living in the US and he makes frequent trips around the Caribbean islands and the BVI and Haiti and other islands that need assistance and delivers them supplies. And uh, he's going to be telling us his story today. Your host today, Talha Bhatti. I'm in Virginia and Farah, who is sitting in the UK. Welcome to the show, guys. Welcome to the show. Hello. Yes, and thank you, Talha. Thanks for introducing myself and Ray. My name is Farah, and I've been working with Talha on the Shipshape podcast for the last year or more. And we've been amazingly interviewing these incredible, incredible people. Ray, thank you so much for being on the show. We are so Pleasure. excited to have you as our guest. Thank you for inviting me. Ray, uh, tell I'm everybody, a, where are you? <laughs> right now I'm in a parking lot, as they say, or in English we say a car park, somewhere near Norfolk, Virginia, not far from Tala, uh, where I'm uh, looking at a, a Walmart right now. And in fact, um, I had to stop for this podcast. And uh, so this is uh, going over cellular radio. Straight across the satellites and uh, over to England. We're right where and I are am. you picking up supplies? What are you doing? <laughs> I'm actually shipping a UPS uh, transmission, uh, our old transmission that somebody's bought in Rhode Island. So I've got to get this thing packed up and shipped. So uh, that's why I'm here. And I've got to get to the UPS a few minutes after this conversation. But please, there is wow. no hurry. As soon as we finish talking, I've got plenty of time to get to the UPS. Yeah. And then, Tala, I'll be walking right past your boat to get back to our boat uh, later on this evening to carry on installing our new engine. Nice. Okay, I mean, but before yeah. we talk about Ray passing by Tala's boat, Ray, why aren't you passing by my accommodation? Because it sounds very clearly like you've been living in the UK. I mean, you should be my neighbor at this point. What are you doing in the US? How did you end up there? There must be a story behind this. Well, actually, uh, the last time I was in the UK, I was not far off being your neighbour. Uh, you're in Bromley in Kent, and I was on the M25 in a, a little town called Ashhead, which is near Leatherhead in Surrey, which you yes. must know. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was there for about 10 years, uh, but I moved back to the States about the time of the financial crash, about 2008. But I'm originally from Merseyside, or as they say where I'm from originally, Merseyside. Merseyside. Um, and it sometimes comes out when I say, where's my shirt? But, <laughs> but, it, but, I did live in, <laughs> but I did live in Hampshire, I'm sorry, for most of my life. And when I went to university, I was in uh, North Wales in Bangor. Uh, oh. So uh, that, that's where I was in the UK. I, I'm from a little town called Formby, which is near Southport in England. And... Uh, it's actually, it, I started out when I was born a Lancashire lad because Southport was inside Lancashire. But they changed the borders and um, Southport suddenly became part of 
the Sefton Ward of Merseyside. And I knew it had happened because my IQ dropped 20 points and I started stealing things immediately. <laughs> Where's my tea, Ray? Where's my tea? Too funny. But, but Ray, how long has this obsession with the ocean been? Like, did you grow up sailing? Did your parents go sailing? Like, what got you no, involved in this at all? Not at all. But Southport is absolutely on the coast, uh, in, on the Irish Sea. And I was literally born and lived my life walking on the sand dunes and uh, swimming in the ocean, which is, by the way, horribly cold. If you, mm. you have to do it, otherwise you never swim. So that's what we did as we were kids. But no, my parents never were in the ocean at all. I, I got into the boating side of it uh, with friends in the Lake District, usually water skiing and motorboats. But when I got to the States... Um, what brought you here, though? What brought you to the States? Um, I was trying to set up a company and mm -hmm. I needed venture capital money. And mm -hmm. venture capital money in the, in the early 80s was actually very difficult to get. And in fact, um, I ended up with about the only venture capital firm in the whole of the UK at the time. It was called Anglo-American Venture Management. And that was run by, partially by the Department of Trade and Industry under Tony Wedgwood Ben in mm -hmm. those days. And an American venture capitalist who came in to you know, set up the American-style VC business. Mm. So they messed me around for about two years, and I wasted a stack of money trying to convince them of a computer graphics business idea that I had at the time. And uh, eventually said, oh, well, we decided not to invest in your company after basically saying it was a done deal for, uh, you know, nearly a year. So I got patently upset with the idea of it was just almost impossible for somebody who wasn't born with the title baronet or earl or lord mm. um, to get, you know, considerable sums of money to set up a company. You know, Richard Branson is one of the few who really did it, right? Yeah. So I decided that's it. I'm going to America. And so I started in Canada staying with friends and I got a job with an American company in Ontario, uh, in Ottawa. And uh, within a year, they moved me to headquarters in Massachusetts, uh, in Marlborough, Massachusetts. And I know, Tala, you've heard of the company. Most people haven't anymore. In its time, it was the second biggest computer company in the world next to IBM. Uh, we were Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm. And uh, I was there the longest time I was with any company in, the in, in my whole life, um, eight years, based out mm. of Massachusetts. And it was a great eight years, a great company to work for. But what sort of work was that? Um, I was in basically computer development and um, eventually marketing and consulting. It's um, very different to know. being on a boat. I mean, that's a, such a <laughs> jump, isn't it? It's a huge leap. Yeah. Well, that company eventually got acquired by Compaq, which you may have heard of, which is now Hewlett-Packard. And yep. they gave me a year's pay to go away. So I thought, what do I do with a year's pay? Well, got to buy a boat. So I started <laughs> hunting for a boat and, um, <laughs> and decided to buy a boat in the end after searching for about six months. I bought a William Garden offshore catch, 51 foot. I lived aboard that boat for about eight years, um, starting in... Charlestown Harbour in Boston. Eight years yeah, on the same like, boat. And but that's same a big boat. boat and like zero experience before this. Like you you didn't mention any sailing, etc. before this. Well funny you should say that, but actually you won. No, yeah. I'd never sailed and I bought a 51-foot catch that needed remasting. Well, you pull yeah. this piece of string and the sail goes up. How hard can it be? <laughs> yeah. 
Wow. I mean, for a lot of people who are listening, I, I you know, it's a huge leap. You talk about people who live on land and then you suddenly, because mm. I speak to Tala so often, there's things like shrink wrapping your boats. Then he's always <laughs> doing things. He's always jumping in the water and he's always scraping bits off his boat from the bottom. And then right. bang, we're having a conversation in the middle and he's like, oh, look, dolphins. And I'm just like, excuse me, postman. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like, you know, for people who are not used to that kind of lifestyle, it's a huge jump. I mean, you're making it seem so easy, Ray. Well, it's, it's never easy. Uh, you know, you think it might be at first and then you find out it isn't. But, mm. you know, let's face it. Uh, let's face it. When you're on a boat, you, you have a bigger swimming pool than most people. And mm. all you got to do Ooh. is to walk out of your front door and fall in. So, uh, you know, that's kind of nice. You know, there are lots of things to do. You have to scrape the bottom regularly. And uh, it seems like everything on the boat breaks every year or more than every year. Mm. And uh, you have to fix it. And you can't really afford mm. usually to have somebody else fix it. So you have mm. to learn how to fix it yourself. But you know what? I, I don't really think it's that much different from owning a house. You know, you've got to yeah. have a lawnmower and you've got to, you know, you've got to paint your house and you've got to fix the woodwork and you got to fix the stairs or your electrics go wrong and or you got to call a plumber and you have to work a week to pay the plumber for one day's work you know and mm. so i don't know it's just a different kind of work but living aboard a boat is definitely a, a totally different lifestyle can i ask yeah. you know people around you you know when i know when tala was deciding to live on a boat everybody there was a hue and outcry remember tala everybody was like, you crazy <laughs> Um, you know, what was the response when you said you're going to go and take this decision to live on a boat? You must have had some kind of response from your family around you saying, are you crazy, Ray? What are you thinking? Well, yeah. most of my family, when I lived in Massachusetts, were in Merseyside. And so, you know, they didn't really have too much input. Most of my friends were happy because they had dreams of going out sailing regularly with me. <laughs> Ulterior uh, motives. And- yeah, really. And so, you know, that, and that worked out okay. I, I do have a one fun story. Uh, my boss's boss, who was a vice president at Digital Equipment Corporation, somebody who I actually did not like very much. Uh, his name was, I'll tell you, tell you his name. His name was Bill Stoyle, quite a famous guy in the computer industry, at least on Route 128, Massachusetts. And I did know that he was a sailor. He was a racing sailor. And one day I was just at uh, the tea dock, which is, you know, reserved for the larger boats, which my boat was, certainly the largest boat in the dock at Shipyard Quarters, Charlestown, you know, Boston area. Mm. And I'll never forget being at the end of the dock, standing next to my boat. And this guy ambles up the dock and he said, oh, hello, Ray. And oh, hello, Bill, I said. And I've noticed mm. that Bill's boat was a small 38 foot boat called the Intimidator. Which is, you know, kind of what a name. What a wicked that, name. This is the kind of guy he was at work, right? And yeah. uh, and he said, so, he says, uh, are you going sailing on this boat today? I yeah. said, oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, he said, whose boat is it? And I said, well, it's mine. And nice. that was one of the most yeah. satisfying things in my life, watching his face <laughs> drop. And he, he realized that uh, one of his ex-employees was in a boat almost twice as big as his. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, but Sarai, tell me, tell us more. Our, our listeners would love to know what, like, a catch and tales. Tell us more about this first boat of yours. What was yes. it like living mm-hmm. on it? Well, a big old 50-foot catch is actually quite a big boat. Uh, you know, the aft cabin had a, an actual bathtub in it. And so, you know, it was reasonably comfortable. The worst part, and I know, Tala, that you're going to relate to this. Uh, the worst part of it was I was in a decent marina. You know, it had the, all the services, the electricity and, you know, the, all, all the sewage that pumped 
to a dock tank and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was, it was you know, you, you could use the toilet facilities or as Americans call it, the restroom. The and head, um, yeah. <laughs> the, or on a boat, we call it the head. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we could, I could use everything like you do in a house. Except when it came to winter time and the dock was covered in six mm. inches of sheet ice and, you know, you're waking up in the morning and no matter what kind of heating you have in the boat, on my boat, it turned out that I actually had clouds forming inside the boat by the ceiling. Wow. And, uh, you know, and then you see this little flash of lightning and it starts to rain on you <laughs> while you're trying to sleep in bed. <laughs> oh my yeah. god so, uh, after but that's more Boston that, for you than anything yeah. 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 yeah after six months of that I said that's it I'm going to the Caribbean so mm. uh, you know I wasn't working I'd been laid off I was living aboard the boat the layoff paid for and so uh, after six months I basically undocked and headed to the Caribbean and uh, I have to tell you though that um, I'd actually never really uh, sailed a sailboat before in my life Really? So mm. my first ever real sail was uh, was 1,700 nautical miles from Boston to Turks and Caicos. Nice. Tell us about that. Wow. Some fun stories of that, some scary stories. Yeah, getting knocked down in a white squall. Uh, you know, those things actually really do happen. I've in only a white seen... squall, sorry, you'll have to, you'll have to explain because mm. for us non-boat people, we need to know more. Knocked over well, by I'll what? tell you, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know exactly meteoro meteorologically, you know, what a white squall is, but I can tell you what it felt like when it was happening to me. So there we were, we'd just gone through the Gulf Stream, which is uh, somewhere, you know, south of uh, Connecticut. Yeah. We were sailing along very nicely with all sails up at about mm -hmm. five knots in a beautiful crystal clear day. I think it was about June 1992. And all around was just calm, flat waves, uh, gentle flat swells hmm. uh, out in the ocean about 300 miles from land. And I got a weird depression in my head. You know, it was a really strange thing. I I'd never experienced anything like it before. I just felt like there was a depression inside my forehead, hmm. uh, maybe in my sinuses. And I, I thought, this is really strange. And I'm looking around and all I could see was blue sky and, you know, dark blue water. Hmm. And... I thought, there's something weird happening. I don't know what. And I was just literally leaning down the hatch, being the only one on deck, uh, holding the steering wheel. And I was just shouting, all hands on deck. And suddenly it hit and I got blasted by a, you know, basically a squall. And the, the next thing we knew, there was a swirl of sea, you know, white foam blasting over the side of the boat. And we were on our side. Uh, you know, it was a heavy, wow. big boat. You know, it's a 54,000 pound boat. We were laid over, all the sails were up, and the crew couldn't even get up the companionway and up past the ladder. You know, they were climbing on the refrigerator and trying to scramble up the ladder, and, you know, it was, it was perpendicular <laughs> to the normal direction. So, uh, mm. you know, so single-handed, handedly, basically, I had to, you know, get the sails down. Uh, it comes from nowhere. It, it, just, it just came from nowhere. It came from absolutely nowhere, and I was even looking for it because I was alerted the fact that there was a low pressure zone going on and I couldn't figure it out. But, you know, absolutely out of nowhere, wham, we were on our side. So we were being hit by probably 70, 80 knots of wind, at least. Whoa. And, and I've been in that kind of wind before and we weren't laid over. So it may have been more like 100 or 120 knots. It's impossible to know. But, you know, we were, and, and then when the boat finally came up, after I'd managed to get the sail loose, you know, the, the mizzen, the mainsail, the two jibs that were up, you know, the boat finally came back up again. 
Now, the problem is that while we were laid on our side, uh, I discovered that's when the fuel tank vents were on backwards mm. and the fuel tank drained out of the boat while we were healed over. No. Um, so, oh, my God. Yeah. So I ended up with, you know, probably I think in those days I had about 150 gallons of diesel fuel in the tanks and most of it got drained overboard. After a few hours of motoring, I found myself with no fuel in the middle of the Atlantic and becalmed. So, uh, yeah, that was my first ever sale. <laughs> what? Okay. All right. I mean, how did you get back to safety? Yeah. Um, I, well, it's a funny story. Um, after two or three days of just being totally becalmed and trying to head south towards the Caribbean. Um, two or three days, uh, you say? Two yeah. or three days. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And after getting nowhere, um, we noticed that there was a great big fuel uh, bulk carrier ship going past uh, us uh, over the near the horizon and I, I i usually call ships up and just say hello to the captain as they go by mm -hmm. and you know shoot the breeze and and i did the usual thing channel 16 hello ship to the west of uh, sailing catch uh you know uh where are you headed and they got back to me and they said they were heading up from uh, from actually they were coming up from panama to nova scotia and i said so what are you carrying and they said number two diesel fuel Mm -hmm. And I said, and one of the crew behind my shoulder said, oh, you know, can you get them to bring some to us? And I said, ha ha, yeah, all right. Well, so I said to the captain, hey, uh, if you got nothing else to do, mind coming back and uh, giving us a, a couple of hundred gallons of fuel? And the captain said, yeah, okay. <laughs> no wow. way. So, so, you know, the, so the crew thought I was God at that point. And uh, uh -huh. I think I think, I think think there's a term in Arabic, something like Nohoda, uh, which means Huda. next to God. Yeah. Or is otherwise known as Captain. <laughs> uh, so that's wow. what the crew. <laughs> so that's where the crew thought I was. And um, anyway, yeah, th that was amazing to watch because the ship came back, turned around, came towards us, and we were talking to the captain at the time. And uh, he was a German with a Filipino crew. And the captain said that the reason why he was doing this is because he had tons of time. There was a big storm in the north, and he was going to have to slow down to avoid the storm anyway. And so he came back and he actually was in full reverse and he went around our boat about three times before he could actually stop. Uh, those things have a lot of momentum. And it was fascinating. And to get the fuel to us, rather than come close to us, he dropped a life raft in the water uh, that was filled with, I don't know, 20 or 30 big five-gallon diesel cans. And then, you know, we got a rope onto that and we pulled it to our boat, loaded the fuel, they pulled the life raft back up to the ship, filled it up with fuel again, dropped it back in the water, and we carried on until we filled our tanks for free. Wow. Um, what? We, we for exchanged. free? <laughs> yeah, that we exchanged. Amazing. That's a we little fortune on its own. Like, you know, whiskey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so There's that a lot of camaraderie. Cool. There's a lot to be yeah. said yeah. about the marine culture and a lot of camaraderie, which people don't see on a daily basis and the more people i speak to the more i you know more opportunity i have to interview you know gentlemen mm. like yourselves and ladies like yourself who've been on the marine world you just notice there's such a level of understanding compassion support camaraderie and going out of your way for the other person there's a lot of level of calm which i think is incredible i, I mean survey i mean you just told us the most amazing story and this was your first sale there must have been a, at least an incident in your life where you've turned around and thought i'm not going to make it out of this do you have yes. any sort of story that you could share with us um yes there are and possibly the 
biggest one was actually a game to do with sailing. Uh, I was actually sailing not too far from here around Cape Hatteras, which is a place that's known to have, you know, some pretty bad storms. I was sailing from north to south aboard actually in those days um, a 56 foot catch that had been donated to International Rescue Group, which is an organization that I founded about a decade ago to do disaster relief and relief work to islands and coastal communities, mainly starting off in the Caribbean. But I was aboard this boat, basically delivering it to Florida um, to get it to the point where I could get her in condition to be used as a, a working boat. Two crew aboard, and we were basically trying to beat a storm that wasn't forecast until we'd already headed out towards south towards Cape Hatteras. Unfortunately, just as we were trying to turn right to avoid the storm and go into uh, North Carolina, into a calm port, the storm caught us and we got into a pretty serious southerly gale, which basically forced us to turn around 180 degrees and go back where we came from. So I ended up in southerly storm, uh, huge waves. Uh, the Coast Guard was saying, um, small boat warning any boat out there get in <laughs> and we were sitting yeah. there going okay you know yeah it's going to take us two days to get in anyway so we have to ride this one out and um we didn't have an autopilot so i was steering the boat at five knots with the sails down on bare poles with the storm behind us so i was basically what they call running with the wind and um something at one point happened uh, there was a cushion on the in the cockpit next to me and the cushion suddenly lifted up into the air on a kind of little little whirlwind. And it, it floated in the air in front of me for a few seconds before it zoomed off to the right and oh. just disappeared. And yes. then just as I'm thinking, well, that, that doesn't happen every day. Then yes. it flew back on the boat and landed right in front of me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you're like, oh, boy. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the funny thing okay. is, uh, yeah. the funny thing is, that printed on the back of that seat cushion was "Please help" in great big letters. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, that's ominous, almost. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a favorite cushion of mine. I kept that for a long time. But mm. yeah, the two crew I had basically said, "That's it. We're going to die. Uh, we're just going. They were already sick anyway." So they went downstairs and lay down and you know puke for the for about two straight days and uh so i was up there in the cockpit in lightning and with uh you know sea spouts all around um hanging onto the wheel and uh you know just just keeping us uh with the stern to the wind until the storm disappeared and so that took me about you know two days of non-stop steering you couldn't leave the wheel at all and i must admit that there were a, a few moments where i thought well this is my last sailing voyage. If I do go, I hope it's quick. And, uh, oh you know, I, I don't want to be floating and swimming in the water and chomped up by sharks. Uh, so, uh, but I, at that time, I must admit, I, I did think that uh, my time had come. But uh, it wasn't wow. to be, and here we are. And you live mm, to tell the went tale. On some more. Very nice. But the, so really, take us back. Tell us more about this international rescue group. What what may, you know? What got you interested in starting it? Where have you been with it? Well, I was in Silicon Valley at the time in California uh, in the high tech industry. You know, the, the, you've heard of dot coms. I was one of those dot com people operating out of Silicon Valley. And at some point, I, I actually sold the company that I founded. But, you know, I needed work. It wasn't a terribly great deal. And so I started looking for a job and I was 56. And that's when I discovered that being 56 years old 
in Silicon Valley, which is full of, you know, 22-year-old kids founding companies and getting venture capital money and all that kind of stuff, it was literally impossible to find a job. So I tried a couple of occasions uh, working with old friends to try a couple of startups. Unfortunately, only one startup in 10 or 20 actually succeeds. So uh, I found myself completely broke after, you know, I had two properties in the London area. I had two properties in San Francisco. Uh, the financial crash hit and I found myself underwater, you know, with $2 million of debt. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was the end of that. And so I thought, okay, well, that didn't work out very well. Let's try something else. And so I got into the nonprofit sector and uh, dusted off a business plan that I'd had for a couple of decades to do disaster relief by boat. And the key there is that I enjoyed sailing. I, I like to live on a boat and, you know, get around the world. Can I do something charitable that enables me to just enjoy that lifestyle? And so I had the plan to build an organization called International Rescue Group. And what we do is we, we're able to find donated supplies and working with the Red Cross. Uh, if there's ever a hurricane in, in, for example, the Caribbean, we were able to work with the Red Cross, take on tons of their supplies and get the supplies to where they actually couldn't get them themselves. Because very often, you know, in the Caribbean, uh, when an island is hit by a tropical storm or a a hurricane the airport is knocked out there's very little shipping going to the islands for a few weeks and only a few boats like ours were able to do it so uh basically i spent about nine years doing that on a donated boat and uh you know basically i was able to enjoy the sailing lifestyle uh, i got to live on a boat and uh i can live on my pension <laughs> and uh, and that kind of worked out well. So uh, that's that's what I'm doing now. That's and amazing. You need course, a special kind of boat to, to make that happen. So what, what sort of boat are we talking about? Yeah, so we got this uh, old sailing barge, Dutch barge, probably built in the 1960s. Uh, she, but she's a proven ocean crossing boat, catch rig. And we're able to carry about three tons of supplies. So right now I'm putting a new engine in the boat. The old one died because it got too old. And we're hoping to sail within about two weeks to Haiti. And we have about three tons of supplies uh, in a storage area ready to come aboard. We've got medical supplies. We have uh, recycled sails for the subsistence fishermen, about 100 of those. We've got 50 bicycles for the community children, and we've got all sorts of uh, food and other supplies, you know, some individual deliveries for various people that we know on the islands. I used to live in on Haiti, but right now Haiti's in a real mess. The president was assassinated two years ago. The government has completely failed. Uh, the gangs have taken over the entire country. And right now the mainland is uh, such a dangerous place that the U.S. literally just a few days ago uh, the U.S. has uh, sent out an alert to all NGOs uh, and organizations on Haiti to get out because their lives are in danger. Gosh. So that makes it very hard for the people. They've got no, no help. Fortunately, I know the location I'm going to very, very well. I've got local support. And uh, fortunately, where I go to, there are, there are no gangs. It's just the normal island people in charge. So although it's still dangerous, there is still piracy. You know, we, we have a route that we think can avoid um, any possible pirates out there. That is unfortunately not just a story. It's a real thing right now.
So we hope to be able to avoid any uh, degradation by pirates, uh, get our supplies to the anchorage. They'll send out water taxis to pick up. We'll drop over the side into the water taxis. And sadly, uh, we'll have to up the anchor and get the heck away, you know, before the gangs on the mainland hear about us and start coming after us with machine guns, which will definitely happen if we spend too long there. So there we are. That's the mission we're on. And hopefully, uh, Talha will be away in two weeks. That's a lot of responsibility, though, Ray. That's a massive amount of responsibility on your shoulders. I mean, do you have a large team of people that you're working with? Um, alongside you on this or if somebody wanted to get involved in something like this how would they go about it right well i do have a lot of land support of uh, various kinds including somebody who's very very well known alison thompson um, third wave volunteers actually she's a blonde australian woman who lives in miami and she is still and until <laughs> until the government is put together again she's actually still haiti's ambassador for the ministry of the environment so she's helped a great deal you know with intelligence reports and land-based support and uh, donations to keep us sailing and we have a few people like that who work with us who know what it takes including you know people in the red cross who know us but when it comes to sailing frankly it's just going to be two or three of us you know sailing the ship down to haiti you know they know the risks uh they're, they're excited by doing such a thing we minimize risk enormously because we know exactly what we're doing and where we're going but there is still risk. But then again, when you go sailing, there's always risk. But, yeah. you know, we've got some really good people. On this particular trip, I've got another crew member joining us. So there'll be three of us. And what else can I say? <laughs> and we're a pretty lean organization. Basically, we're all 100% volunteers. And we do it for the fun of it. I, I call it philanthropic crewing. I don't know if that's a term you've ever heard before. No, I don't know if I invented it. It's very apt and very fitting indeed. Yeah, I, I don't know if I invented the term or if I heard it somewhere and plagiarized it. But um, I'm calling it philanthropic crewing. And, you know, there are some people who really uh, get off on the excitement of doing something like that. It's not just sailing a boat from A to B. It's actually accomplishing a real mission and getting the excitement and the story a out. tangible result. I mean, you're making a difference. As you said, it's philanthropic. Ahoy, investors. Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. Ray, what exactly. does the future hold for you in terms of when you look at what you want to do now going forward? You're doing these incredible things. Mm. What, what should we expect from Ray in the future? Well, I'm now 69 and nearly 70. Um, and, and by the way, for those who can't see him, he doesn't look a day over 40. <laughs> He's saying that, but well, he doesn't. you see, I, I was born at a very early age. <laughs> and it doesn't get any easier I, I'm, I'm being forced to recognize it fortunately i'm still 
actually healthier. So uh, I'm getting around okay, but I'm not as fast as I used to be, or I don't have as much stamina as I used to have. And I'm having to recognize, you know, it's going to be a world of younger and fitter people than me. And what I'm trying to do now is find the right people to pick up where I eventually leave off. And in some way, hoping to build the organization so that it outlasts me and continues as an NGO into the future and continues to do, you know, aid projects for the people who need it in coastal and island communities, which is our niche, doing it by boat. Right now, I found a few people who I think are uh, perfect to continue the organization into the future. And so that's kind of the mode I'm in. But I've got a few years left in me, so <laughs> so I've got plenty of time to train people and get the organization designed so that, you know, people can take over the management and run it. That's amazing. Mm. And Ray, I want to backtrack a little. So you sort of alluded to that you'd done this before and, and you knew which routes to take because you'd, mm. you'd seen them before. So I guess you've done Haiti a couple of times now. What other islands or locations have you guys visited with your international health rescue group? Mm. Well, over the last nine years, we've done a lot of relief operations. You've probably heard of Hurricane Matthew. Yes. Yeah. One example. Wow. And Hurricane Matthew eventually hit, not only hit the Caribbean, but it came up and hit the USA as well, Florida and further north. And mostly it's been Haiti. Haiti got hit by the 2010 earthquake. About 5% of the entire population died, either immediately during and after the earthquake or of disease and other problems immediately, you know, closely afterwards. So uh, Haiti has been hit by one disaster after another. There's been another earthquake about two years ago, not far from where uh, I've been regularly giving aid in the island of Ilavash to the south of Haiti. It's an island of 17,000 people. It's a very poor island. It's totally dependent on subsistence fishing and uh, the very few jobs that they were able to get, which are all, frankly, in the last two years, all gone. So right now it's an island of 17,000 people who have a hospital with absolutely nothing in the dispensary. You know, right now they're trying to cure things with what, coconut leaves and mango juice or whatever. It's literally that bad. So Haiti, I've been there about 15 times. I lived there for about three months at one point in time. But I've also responded to tropical storms in other islands as well, such as Dominica and the British Virgin Islands, just two other examples. Ray, how do you, I have to ask, compartmentalize this because some of the things you're seeing must be emotionally very traumatizing. They must scar you because to some extent you do feel helpless. I mean, you are providing as much aid as possible. You're doing your level best, but you're one team of people. I mean, it must be very difficult to compartmentalize what you're being exposed to and deal with the trauma. And sometimes you must feel quite helpless as well. How does one manage emotions like that? And how do you deal with them? And how do you compartmentalize them? Or do you not at all? I wish I had a formula. I do see extreme hunger and lack of everything, including healthcare. Um, so I see that all the time, uh, especially in Haiti. The rest of the Caribbean is actually quite wealthy, but Haiti is just ridiculously poor. There's certainly the most poor place in the Western Hemisphere of the world. And so it's literally is a way of life there. How do I deal with this? I, I don't think I do, really. I, it's, it's what keeps me going. It was what keeps me going back. You know, you know that you can never do enough. I mean, I can't help the entire island. But what I can do is fill a hospital dispensary 
that you know may be useful for say i don't know six months and you know i can get sales recycled sales to the subsistence fishermen and that's how they stay alive and you know they if you've ever seen a haitian fishing boat you would know that they they use everything they can find every bit of cloth uh, you know, a beer banner, a PVC, or literally anything they can find to stitch into a sail. Uh, they'll sail with it, and they are possibly, I would say, the greatest sailors in the world. I mean, none of them has an engine. They go out and they pull themselves out into the deeper water, uh, you know, or row themselves out, and um, away they go, they're sailing. And sometimes they don't come back. Um, but, you know, that's the way it is when you're sailing. You know, you get into a storm. But what I can do is on this one trip, I can replace the sails on every single boat on the island. The hundred sails I'm taking, they'll probably cut it into two or three hundred sails. My guesstimate is that, that that will be, you know, some canvas for every single boat. And that'll give the subsistence fishermen probably five years or more of a of decent sailing canvas to be able to run their boats with alone that there will make a big difference you know to their long-term viability so i feel like i'm doing something useful there having so really the last few oh. years when like we were going through the whole pandemic and stuff did you feel there was more compassion in the world and, and people were coming together or what was the vibe there i think the only way that i have as an ngo as a small charity and we are small basically we're a startup I think the only way I have to measure that is donations, right? Is how much, pe how much people are willing to, to help us with some funds uh, to be able to fulfill our mission. And we don't need much. I mean, for example, on this particular one trip, we're looking for $10,000. That's our budget. And that buys a lot of fuel and it buys the various maintenance items to keep the ship running. And it allows us to pick up the cargo and to get it to Haiti. And so, you know, with that $10,000, we get probably thirty dollars or $40,000 or more, uh, you know, worth of cargo to the island. So instead of most charities, you know, you give them $100 and maybe that $1 actually reaches the end recipient. The way we do it is we spend, you know, $1 and we get 3 or $4 to the end recipient. So I do feel good about that, but it comes down to measuring how much people are willing to donate. And I think during the pandemic, I have to say, usually it's always been, it's, well, it, for me, the last decade, it's been over the internet, right? So I've used the internet in the same way that I know how, and I should know how because I'm from the internet business. But I think during the pandemic, things really slowed down. And, you know, the income we got basically dwindled to almost nothing. And in fact, you know, when I add up the actual online donations we received over the last year, it's probably about, well, this is going to be embarrassing for me to say, but it's probably about $3,700. So at the moment, the other $6,000 that, you know, I budgeted to get to Haiti is coming out of my own pension. That's okay. But, you know, I wouldn't mind getting that because, you know, it's unsustainable <laughs> to keep doing that. So I think the pandemic basically slowed down compassion for other people. Maybe it's because people were so worried about themselves and where's the money coming from in the future. I find it difficult to quantize what really happened. But, you know, and that's one experience, but it's, it's my experience. Wow. Yeah, so literally so, both react the same way. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So as we wrap this up, Ray, like where can people engage with you? Where can they find out more about what you're doing? Where can they donate if they want to? Do you have an Instagram page? Can they follow you on Facebook? Like how does this play out? Sure. Yeah, we do have a, an online you know, Facebook causes page. We're on Instagram as well, on a linked page. Um, it's International Rescue Group or directly to our website is internationalrescuegroup.org. Sorry about the large name. 
when we tried to get, you know, online URLs by then, all of the three-letter ones had gone. <laughs> so IRG, International Rescue Group, had already gone to some other company or other. So there it was. So sorry, folks, but uh, if you go to, if you type out internationalrescuegroup.org, uh, that'll take you to our website. And then you can find out about our mission. And on every page is a link to our GoFundMe. And if people would like to donate to our GoFundMe and help us get to our $10,000 for Haiti this year, I'd be very appreciative. Ooh. And what about the philanthropic crewing that you'd mentioned? Do you think that's a trend that's like picking up around the world? Yeah, that's been a, a rather nice trend I've enjoyed, you know, for the last decade. I found it quite easy to fill the boat with crew. Right now, we're trying to keep it, you know, very shorthanded because right now going to Haiti is quite dangerous. And, you know, I don't want young people taking that kind of risk and me being responsible. So we've got guys in, we're in our 50s or 60s, and we totally understand the risk of what we're doing. And there's only three of us. So <laughs> hopefully we'll be okay. Uh, but, you know, just in case, it's, it's three mature people, you know, who recognize the risk. But generally, I've found that it's been quite easy to get crew, and I've often sailed with 10 or 12 people aboard. You know, the boat's big enough, we've got plenty of room to sleep. So as we go into our next phase, um, what I haven't mentioned is that we are actually relocating. Unfortunately, the Caribbean and the U.S. area, the region has been just simply too expensive for us to be sustainable. And so I decided to move to a new base in the Philippines. Where we're going to do the same thing, but in Asia. And when you're in the Philippines, you're only like a week's sail away from Indonesia, Taiwan, quite a number of the South China Seas countries. And in the Philippines, they have on average about 20 typhoons a year. So we'll have plenty of work to do. And of course, uh, in the Philippines, everything is a lot cheaper. It'll cost our organization at least a half less than it costs in the Caribbean, which is frankly an expensive place to be on a boat. And it just proved to be unsustainable. And so when we're in the Philippines and we're heading through the South China Seas, I've got no concerns at all. And uh, I'm sure we'll get, you know, plenty of people who want to be involved there uh, and no trouble finding philanthropic crew. Nice. So obviously, Ray, you've got thousands and thousands of hours sailing, perhaps thousands more with your philanthropic interests. Are there any sort of words of advice, some wisdom that you could leave our listeners with, especially the younger generation, on how to just you know, make the world a better place? Right. Well, first thing first, I say that, and it comes from my experience of working with a very small organization as we are, only one person can help another person. And you know, no matter how big you are, even if you're the Red Cross, you're, you're one person working for or with the Red Cross. And you're still one person helping one family out or one other person. And so every charity, whether you're enormous or whether you're tiny, uh, it all boils down to one person helping somebody else. So, you know, with that mentality, I think it kind of boils it down to what is it you want to do with your life? And with me, I just want to be able to help people out as best I can. To that end, what would I advise other people? Well... It's an interesting world. I don't think anyone can predict the way we used to 40, 50 years ago. You know, we used to think if we could learn how to program, we'd have a great career. Um, I don't think that's sustainable in the future. 
you know, there are certain careers like doctor and maybe lawyer <laughs> uh, where you'll continue to have employment into your 70s. Um, but, you know, it's very difficult for a lot of people now to determine what can they do, you know, where they can have a, a life. And I think a lot of people are looking at alternatives. In my own family, I've got people who, you know, who are actually living an alternate lifestyle. A couple, for example, in my own personal family in Europe are just touring Europe in a, in a van. You know, they've got a camper van and they live in the van and they work in their van and they're able to do some online work to keep some money coming in. And, you know, that's a big change from the way people were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And it's becoming, I think, more and more not just acceptable, but even possibly desirable. Well, if you enjoy being on the sea, maybe, you know, you might enjoy just finding a lifestyle on a boat. You can live quite cheaply. And, you know, as long as you're not looking for a big boat, I started out with a big boat, but, you know, I've been around for a while when I started and I had a bit of money. But you don't need a lot of money to move onto a boat. And in fact, you can buy yourself a fairly nice, capable sailboat where two people can live quite comfortably. So what? What do you think, Tala, in the States? $10,000? $20,000? You know, buy an old boat. For sure. Buy an old boat, fix it up, and just don't wait until later until you've saved enough money because it may end up being too late. You know, do it now. And uh, I guess that's the advice I would give people right now. Say don't overthink it. Just, you know, deep dive. That's the way to do it, right? Mm. Deep dive. I mean, I, I think... One of the things that I've learned from this conversation with you today is we spend a lot of time overthinking things. And sometimes it's as simple as that and um, making a huge difference to so many people's lives. Even if it's a small little dot of a difference, it's got ripple effect. I mean, excuse the pun here, but there is a ripple Mm -hmm. effect. It does. It does go on like waves and you've been doing it for, you know, so many years now. And obviously there's. There's merit to it and there's credit to it and credit to you. And I mean, all I can Mm. say is all the best and for everyone who's been listening. I hope they've been impacted by this as much as we have. It's inspiring. Honestly, Ray, it's inspiring. It doesn't seem terribly inspiring to me when we're actually there, but because, uh, you know, we're just working and doing the best we can. But I do. And for the people I work with, I just want to say thank you. Uh, We really appreciate that. Let's get this mission through and, and we'll send you some clips of videos and photographs and uh, copy UR report of this particular trip, assuming we make it out alive. <laughs> I'm sure we will. I'm definitely I'm sure, sure we you will. will. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. take that pillow with you as your, as your yeah. mascot. Where, where is that pillow now? Yeah. Actually, I'm not quite sure where it went. <laughs> it disappeared oh, no. one day. <laughs> Thank Speaking you for everything you do. Speaking of, do you have a little uh, lucky mascot, Ray? Do you, do you have a little sort of something you do like a tradition when you're about to go out i always ask everyone this do you have a certain little process that you follow before you go out like a little good luck charm that you carry with you a ritual or oh mine is incredibly boring um i just like to open up a logbook with a new page and start the captain's log with the name of all the crew and get them all to sign it and uh, we have a, a signed crew roster with our departure time and hopefully ring eight bells and away we go. Oh, I like love that, it. though. That's so love unifying. It. I love that. Well, seriously, Ray, thank you so much. And, you know, best of luck on your next adventure. And Thank you. Definitely going to stick around and find out where you've been, you know, soon. Next couple so of months, keep... we'll be touching base. We'd love to hear about yeah. your adventures. I'll make sure yeah. I copy you my report and all my pictures. 
Thank you, Ray. It's been an honest, Thanks, it's honestly been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's All been all, an honor for me to be here. And thank you. My pleasure to uh, attend this uh, podcast. I just want to say thank you to you, Tala. And thank you to you, Farah, and to everybody who's listening. And uh, I hope that you find it interesting enough to go check out our website and maybe even make a donation at internationalrescuegroup.org. Thank you. Get in there, everybody. Thank you. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe to ShipShake.pro. Pro, 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 pro.